HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by A Dozen Cousins, soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. Learn more at adozencousins.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade, from the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, You also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Chef Jody Adams is one of a very few chefs whose first name alone makes her instantly recognizable, like Cher or Barack. Jody is a rock star chef owner with more than 30 years of success who's earned every national accolade, James Beard, Food and Wine, Top Chef. She's a formidable leader, a major force in the food world, championing female chefs, feeding the hungry, and taking a leadership role in getting the embattled restaurant industry the government help they need during the COVID crisis. I asked Jody Adams how a young woman from a gentle New England background became a nationally acclaimed chef. Food was always central in our family. And the table was really important. Gathering around the table for dinner every night was mandatory. And my mother cooked from scratch. On weekends, she entertained and she loved to experiment. And so she would cook from Julia Child and Craig Claiborne. So there were always these interesting recipes dancing around. Then when I was a freshman in high school, we moved to Europe and lived in England for a year and traveled both summers around Europe in Italy. I was in Morocco and I was in France. I was in Portugal and Spain. I just fell in love with markets and the idea of putting things together from a market. 
later on, I spent a summer in Guatemala with um, an uncle who was an anthropologist and made my way into that kitchen as well and learned how to make tamales and, you know, just always ended up in the kitchen. I didn't have an intention of becoming a chef, except that I ultimately met a woman in the neighborhood who was teaching cooking classes. And that's where I developed my foundation was, first of all, washing dishes and then hanging out and just absorbing the information that Nancy was teaching to these housewives who would come and spend afternoons with her. And so there were some people that did like provincial French cooking every year. And so I learned about provincial French food because I took the class three times myself because I washed dishes through the whole thing. So my nature is to move, to be physically active. And so being in a kitchen was always a really comfortable place for me. And then you get to create these things that make people happy. Beautiful ingredients, create a dish, serve it to friends and family and make them smile. You become the hero. I married straight out of college and I was studying to become a nurse practitioner and I was miserable. I was a year into the marriage and I thought, I don't think at the age of 25, you're supposed to be miserable with your life, both professionally and personally. So I left the marriage and I left studying to become a nurse practitioner, went into hibernation for a year worked at a gourmet food store and kind of had a year of sort of regeneration. And when I emerged, I had decided I wanted to cook in a restaurant. I didn't know what a chef was. I wanted to work in a restaurant. I was dying to work in a restaurant. I'd never worked in a restaurant. And my parents had watched my unhappiness over those years. And I think they were just really happy that I was happy. They didn't understand it at all. I came to Boston. I had met Julia Child, and she recommended I come work for Lydia Shire. It took me a while to get there, but ultimately that's what I did. I worked for Lydia, and I felt like I was home, like I had landed in the right place. It was really hard. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was working very, very long hours and going in early, doing everything that it took for me to catch up since I'd never worked in a restaurant. I was taking care of myself and and I seemed to be happy. Nobody understood it, you know, the early 80s. There weren't a lot of people like me. There were a handful. It was really the beginning of this group of chefs who had been educated outside the country, who valued the ingredients that were grown here with the traditions from Europe and traditions from here as well. I saw in Lydia Shire a professional chef who was taken seriously and respected throughout the country. And I wanted to be that. So I put my head down as a cook and I worked as hard as I could. And the stakes were very high at that time, the people that I was working with. We wanted to be the best. And so working to that standard was a given. It meant going in early, working off the clock, practicing at home, doing whatever it took, reading everything, going to other people's restaurants, you know, just really becoming immersed and educated in what was going on in the country at that time. It wasn't until I became a chef, when I was a chef at Michaela's, that it really became clear that there were people in the world that viewed us differently, that viewed women differently. There were a number of us who were leading restaurants 
but the press was paying way more attention to men for sure. There was a time when I was at Michaela's and I was the chef of that restaurant. I wore a hat and everything. Like I knew I was the chef. And an article was being written about chefs in Boston for the New York Times. And we were really excited about this article that it was going to be in the New York Times and it was profiling Boston chefs. The interviews had been done and a photographer was going around the city and we knew he was going around the city to take pictures. And he came to Michaela's and I cooked for him beautiful plates. I did my whole roasted duck and all of that. And after I finished with the food, I noticed that he was packing up his gear. And I said, are you leaving? He said, yes. And I said, don't you want to take a picture of me as the chef? He said, oh, don't worry about it. I already have a picture of a woman. And as you can imagine, at that time, my blood started to boil. So I went into the office and picked up the phone, called Gordon, my good friend Gordon. And I said, Gordon, did you get your picture taken for this article? Yes. I said, do you think that Jasper got his picture taken? Yes. What about Todd? English. Oh, for sure. He got his picture taken. So I hung up the phone and went back out. And I said to the photographer, I think you want to take a picture of me. And I took a deep breath and stood with my arms crossed with a pose that suggested that I definitely was in charge. And that was the picture they chose to put at the top of the fold of the food section in the New York Times. And I learned at that moment, you don't get what you don't ask for. And I fought for years and years and years to make sure that not just me, but women were in the picture as opposed to not being in the picture. We'll be back with Joni in a minute. This episode is brought to you by A Dozen Cousins, soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. A Dozen Cousins aims to bring families delicious and easy-to-prepare food inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American recipes. From their Cuban black beans, made with onion, garlic, and bell peppers, to their Mexican cowboy beans made with green chilies and jalapenos, all the beans from A Dozen Cousins use easy-to-recognize ingredients like beans, vegetables, and nutrient-dense avocado oil, while avoiding GMOs and artificial flavors. Learn more at adozencousins.com. Now we'll hear from Chef Jody Adams about what happened when her restaurant and those across the country were abruptly forced to shut down due to COVID. In Massachusetts alone, over 81% of the restaurant workers were laid off and 45% of the restaurants were forced to close or hibernate. Let's hear from Jody. In the beginning of March, we knew something was happening. We really started to feel it. And it was as though somebody had poked a hole in the bowl of a ship and we were sinking. The revenue was shrinking. So we made a decision on that Friday that we would close after service on Saturday. Saturday was the 14th. On the 15th, the governor said no more indoor dining. We had two days to prepare. And we closed our doors to all our restaurants because we didn't know what that meant. You know, we didn't have guidelines. We knew we needed masks. We needed sanitizer. But the protocol wasn't there really yet. And there was a steep learning curve over the next couple of weeks. There was a lot of shared information. And the 
silver lining in this was the connections that chefs and restaurateurs made across the country and across the state and forming coalitions to try and answer the question, what the fuck are we going to (laughs) do? You know, what the hell are we going to do? Because as we turned this way and that way to try and find answers, there weren't any. And we realized we would have to answer those questions ourselves. We didn't know, you know, about unemployment. The $600 kicker wasn't established yet. The PPP loans weren't available yet. There was nothing. And what we did at Aniki was to decide to open one of the restaurants. We gathered staff and opened one restaurant so that we could keep people employed and keep the wheels turning And frankly, keep the lights on to bring life to the city. I mean, even after a week, it was so dreary and bleak. And then at Porto, about two weeks in, we decided to start cooking for frontline hospital workers. We raised $75,000 with a GoFundMe page. And that was enormously successful in terms of employing our staff. You know, our priority was what what are we going to do about the staff? And then we tried at Porto to do takeout. We did that for about two weeks and it just didn't take. (laughs) You know, people don't think of Porto as a restaurant where you get to go food. People in the neighborhood supported us and there were people who were ordering four times a week. It just wasn't enough. And just at that time, beginning of June was when the governor allowed us to open for patio seating. And at Porto, we were fortunate because we were able to double up our patio. And eventually we opened the other two Saloniki that are in Cambridge. Those restaurants are breaking even. And Porto was breaking even through the summer. So we were able to employ people and break even. We're not making money for sure. We were not able to open trade in the financial district, nor the one at the airport. The airport doesn't have restaurants open. I mean, I think there's Kelly's Roast Beef or something like that is open, Starbucks probably, but there are not all of the restaurants that had recently opened at the airport. And so trade is closed at the airport and the financial district is ghost town. There's no reason to open there because nobody's going into office buildings. At Porto now, with the cold coming in, nobody wants to sit on a patio. People are nervous about going inside. Sitting inside, we have a curfew and have to have everybody out by 9.30, 10 o'clock. So there's so many restrictions. We have plexiglass up, you know, people are wearing masks. We have sanitizer on the table. It's a completely different experience. And there's some wonderful people who are supporting Porto coming in, but it's not a comfortable situation for a lot of people. And so if you look right now at the list of restaurants that are hibernating for the winter in Boston, it's unbelievable. It doesn't make financial sense for us to stay open because we want to be there in the spring, we want to be able to open and bring our staff back and employ them. If we drain our bank accounts and go wildly into debt, we may not be able to come back. And we had worked for 10 months on the Restaurants Act, which was a $120 billion bill that would have distributed grants to restaurants that made up the shortfall and it didn't make it into the most recent relief bill. As a result, we're going to see many, many, many closures. I mean, every person I talk to, the first thing they talk about is their staff. They will say, you know, I've kept going for my staff. 
A friend of mine had to hibernate his restaurant and was so upset. It was just heartbreaking. He sat his staff down and they said to him, thank you. We know how hard you've worked to keep this restaurant open. It really feels like the government abandoned us, turned us back on the people that they called essential workers in the spring, the people who were making meals for frontline hospital workers, the people who were cooking at Saloniki so people had a place to get lunch if they were working in the neighborhood. They were called the essential workers, and now they are disregarded. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, people who work in restaurants are hard workers. We don't have our hand out. In fact, we are always the first to say yes when someone asks for help. If there's a fundraiser for a school or a hospital, we always say yes. And yet the government did not help us here. And people are becoming acutely aware of what that means. You know, we have the highest percentage of unemployment as an industry right now and what that means and what that's going to mean to the economy. And there's going to be some unemployment extension and additional $300 a week for workers, but it's not going to save restaurants. Well, a lot of restaurants are closing. They're going to close and then open in April and hope that we'll see the beginning of the effects of the vaccine. The warm weather will come. We'll be able to open our doors again, and then we'll get up and going. But we don't know what that looks like yet. We know it's been really difficult. We know you've been losing money. We just want to thank you for taking care of us. Really, it's looking at, okay, so how are we going to take care of our staff for the next three months? That's a problem to solve. And we're looking at a variety of different options. And then what does reopening trade look like? Although we don't know when that's going to be. But in the meantime, it's about figuring out how to get resources to our staff and to continue to fight for relief. Sometimes you don't know what you need to do until you're already in it and realize that that's what you're supposed to be doing at that moment. So it's working, it's advocating, it's it's continuing to let the world know what's happening to restaurants, what's happening to the people that work in those restaurants, and why we need help. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 